All right. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us for this conversation today. I'm Alan Carey, the Director of Sphere Education Initiatives, and I'm thrilled to have you all with us uh, for a timely conversation on polarization and the executive branch as part of our ongoing series of webinars looking at conversations, topics, and ideas that inform the way that free speech, civil discourse, and civic culture can be moved forward in the United States. Uh, today, I'm particularly excited to be hosting this conversation on polarization in the executive branch, not only because I think uh, it's a, a fantastic topic that Jean's going to do a great job telling us a little bit more about, but because it really fits into the core of what it is that we're trying to do with Sphere, which is bring to the front the sort of causes and challenges sitting in front of us to advancing a healthier civic culture in the United States. Uh, a couple of quick things as a reminder for those of you joining us who are interested in getting professional development certificates for the conversation, please make sure that your uh, Zoom name matches your registration name so we can go ahead and capture that. Additionally, as always, we'll be taking your questions throughout the course of the conversation, put those in the chat function. Uh, we'll be weaving those into our Q&A later on in the conversation. Uh, before we dig into that, I did want to also encourage many of you who have not yet had a chance to do so to sign up for Sphere Summit this summer. We're going to be offering Sphere Summit twice, once July 10th and 14th, and the second time July 24th to 28th. They're fantastic opportunities to really dig into these topics at greater depth and uh, as a preview of a little bit of what we're having, uh, what we'll be talking about, Gene has agreed to join us along with uh, Daryl West of the Brookings Institution this summer to talk a little bit more uh, about polarization. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce our speaker for today's conversation. Gene Healy is Senior Vice President for Policy at the Cato Institute. His research interests include executive power and the role of the presidency, as well as federalism and overcriminalization. He is the author of Indispensable Remedy, the Broad Scope of the Constitution's Impeachment Power, and the Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power and is editor of Go Directly to Jail, The Criminalization of Almost Everything. He's also contributed a chapter to libertarianism.org's Visions of Liberty. Healy has appeared on PBS NewsHour and NPR's Talk of the Nation, and his work has been published in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Legal Times, and elsewhere. Healy holds a BA from Georgetown University and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, please join me in welcoming Gene. Uh, so without further ado then, Gene's going to dig in a little bit to tell us a little bit more about the topic, to expand on the conversation of polarization and the executive branch. He's gonna present on this for uh, the first 25 minutes or so. And then after that, we're gonna jump right into Q&A. We'll be pulling in your questions all along the way. So with that, Gene, take it away. Thanks, Alan. And uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, you, uh, I'm sure all have more experience with uh, virtual teaching than, than I do. I'm a little nervous about the, uh, the our, our technological, uh, running into technological difficulties, but hopefully it will work out well. Um, well, I, I don't know how you spent uh, the first year of the pandemic, how your particular lockdown went, but I spent most of mine in the windowless basement office of my uh, DC row house, poring over the political science literature on toxic partisanship and the growth of political hatred. Uh, it was just something living in DC that happened to be on my mind a lot uh, at the time. At times, it got to feeling a little bit uh, up close and personal. That's a picture of the, the Cato building uh, in the summer of uh, 2020. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, running for president at the time, uh, uh, had similar concerns about the rise of polarization. Here he is uh, on Twitter uh, as a president-elect telling us, come on, man, uh, cool down. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, and listen to each other again. And polarization was a central theme of uh, President Biden's inaugural address as well. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue. 
he said in a speech in an inaugural address that used the word unity no fewer than 11 times. Unity, unity, unity is the path forward. And of course, this is a familiar tune. This is something that presidents have been saying since time immemorial, long before it started to feel as it has in recent years, like the country was coming apart. Uh, you think back to uh, George Bush Sr., a kinder, gentler nation, uh, a uniter, not a divider. That was, uh, that was his son. Uh, Barack Obama uh, made uh, an appeal that uh, through the sheer power of presidential rhetoric, he was going to, to make us all one America beyond red and blue. Donald Trump is, uh, of course, an exception to this pattern. He rarely pretended to care about national togetherness. Um, and while I won't, I won't say that that approach was refreshing, uh, because it wasn't, uh, in some ways it was more realistic because uh, the fact is that the forces that are tearing us asunder uh, can't be stopped and can't be healed with uh, pretty words from White House speechwriters. POTUS, and this is the, the point of my remarks today, can't unite us. Uh, the presidency in many ways is at the center of what's driving us apart. Presidential power polarizes. Uh, while Donald Trump did not make that, certainly did not make that problem uh, any better, uh, it wasn't simply his rageaholic antics and uh, mean tweets that made the presidency a central fault line uh, in polarization. The office itself has become that because the president increasingly has the power to reshape vast areas of American life and law. One man can decide whether we have a trade war with China or an actual shooting war with Iran or Russia, who gets to come to the United States and who gets to stay? Uh, the power to decide whether landlords can collect the rent, uh, whether or not you have to pay your student loans and whether or not you have to show your COVID papers in order to keep your job. And when so much turns, on who holds the White House, which party is in control of the executive branch, when that's what's at stake, uh, it's pretty much guaranteed that we're going to fight about it bitterly. Uh, the modern presidency is a divider, not a uniter by its very nature. It's become far too powerful to be anything else. So that's my theme. And here are the few of the points I'm gonna cover. Uh, how we got this polarized, how bad we have it and why, uh, how the presidency and the growth of presidential power has contributed to polarization, um, how, where Joe Biden fits into, uh, into this dynamic, um, why things, at least in the near term, are likely to get worse, and what, if anything, we can do about it. The first thing to appreciate is that mass polarization is real. It's not just something we hallucinated uh, while trapped inside staring into the, the hell mouth of, of Twitter for a couple of years. It's a measurable trend tracked by political scientists. And in the last two decades in particular, it's gotten measurably worse. Politics divides us more than previous, uh, than, than we used to talk about the generation gap, the gender gap uh, on political issues. Uh, it now divides us more than sex, age, race, or religion. Uh, in some ways, politics is increasingly taking the place of religion. We tend to use the word tribalism a lot in the talking about our political divisions. Uh, but in an important paper published last fall, a group of leading scholars suggest that religion is really a better source of metaphor for what's come over us. Uh, it's not so much kinship with uh, you know, fellow feeling 
with our co-partisans that gets us going. It's actually fire and brimstone. We're drunk on the hatred of, of the alien other, the outgroup. Uh, they, as they put it, our zealous faith in the moral correctness of our particular sect. So they suggest the term political sectarianism. Uh, think of Sunnis and Shia or Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. Uh, you may ask, you may be asking yourself, um, is hatred too strong a word to, to, to use in describing Americans increasing polarization? And uh, unfortunately, it's not. Uh, the graphic here ran in The Economist, but the polling data comes from a, a study, a recent study entitled Lethal Mass Partisanship. Um, on the first item in the survey, the, uh, the actual wording of the question was, would you say that the other party, uh, Republicans or Democrats, uh, are a serious threat to the United States and its people, or wouldn't you go that far? Uh, more than two thirds of Republicans and nearly two thirds of Democrats would go that far. In fact, around half of each go so far as to say that the other team is downright evil. When they get out of line, treat them like animals, a substantial minority on each side says. And not pictured there is another question from the survey uh, that asked uh, voters, quote, do you ever think we'd be better off as a country if large numbers of the opposing party in the public today just died? Well, Republicans were just slightly nicer on this one. Only 15% of self-identified Republicans pled guilty to, to that sentiment. 20% of Democrats owned up to occasionally wishing mass death on fellow Americans who don't vote like they do. And uh, you have to wonder how many of them had uh, one of those yard signs that says science is real, love is love, and kindness is everything. Uh, well, how did we get here? Uh, that is a complicated story with more debate than consensus in the political science literature. What is clear, though, is that a lot of it was more by accident than by design. Uh, some of what has happened over the past 20 years to uh, increase polarization and political hatred is just the byproduct of consumer choice. Uh, for instance, uh, people who tend to vote Republican also tend to like big yards with big grills. I'm not stereotyping here. I'm, I'm telling you the, what's in the, the polling data. Uh, they prefer to live in places with plenty of parking, uh, on, on average, places with plenty of parking, big yards, and uh, you know they don't mind driving to stuff as much. Uh, people who tend to vote Democratic tend to prefer urban amenities, walkability, uh, and uh, you know the ability to uh, leave your house and, and get a cup of coffee without getting in your car. And as a result of these divergent preferences for decades now, we've been moving away from each other physically, uh, self-segregating into neighborhoods that have become deeper red and deeper blue. Uh, this phenomenon has been called the big sort, uh, and uh, it's very real. Uh, for example, in 1976, only around a quarter of American voters lived in so-called landslide counties. These are counties where one presidential candidate or another wins the popular vote by, by more than 20 points. Uh, in 1976, it was only around a quarter of American voters. Now, almost 60% of voters live in landslide counties. And increasing numbers tell pollsters that they have no close friends who back the other candidate. Uh, and you can understand in a, in a way that people are surprised when the, their favored candidate doesn't 
win the presidential election because increasingly we, most of us know fewer and fewer people and live near fewer and fewer people who disagree with us politically. Uh, meanwhile, there's a, been a process of uh, self-segregation online and with news consumption as well. Uh, in the digital age, we get to design our own news streams and uh, take your, what do they call it, your personal information diet. Uh, we load up on the stuff that we like and we don't necessarily have to read the stuff we don't. Um, and it turns out that what a lot of us like when we're picking our own news stream is hearing that we were right all along and it's the bastards from the other side who are ruining this country. Well, here's a thought experiment. If you were starting from scratch and designing a constitution or a form of government for the sort of country that I just described, how would you, how would you go about doing that? Well, let me suggest an, an answer. That would be as, as gently as possible. If you were designing governing institutions for such a deeply divided country, in the interest of social peace, you would want to minimize the number of really important decisions that were made at the top, one size fits all, zero sum. You would like to, you'd prefer where possible to have as many important questions as you can settled closer to home where there's more common ground and, and agreement, neighbor to neighbor. Uh, and when you can't avoid having one national policy on something, let's say trade relations or war or immigration, what you would wanna do is have elected representatives in multiple branches of government deliberating and forging consensus. What you would not wanna do is have one person uh, making the call. So you might end up with something kind of like our original constitution. But instead, over the last couple of decades, uh, we've been running a much more dangerous experiment. While Americans have been growing so far apart uh, that increasingly we can't understand each other anymore, uh, at the same time, we've been concentrating vast new powers in the executive branch, making what we already called the most powerful office in the world even more powerful. Uh, fundamental questions of governance that used to be left to Congress, the states, or the people are increasingly now settled, winner-take-all fashion, uh, by which party manages to seize the presidency. This has had the effect of raising the stakes of our political differences dramatically. Uh, and so it shouldn't really be a surprise that it's becoming harder to keep the peace among warring political sects. Uh, we're running the risk by doing this, by concentrating power in the presidency of convincing large numbers of Americans on both sides of the political aisle that uh, every election is a do or die election. Uh, charge the cockpit because it's all over if the other, the other team wins. And that is not good. Uh, which brings us to the Biden administration. Uh, now, Joe Biden uh, ran on, and I think benefited uh, rightfully from a sense that uh, he was going to restore normalcy. And as you saw in the, the quotes at the beginning of this presentation, he was going to lower the temperature of our overheated politics. In fact, uh, if you listen to Donald Trump talk about him, Joe Biden was going to be boring. Uh, Trump said that repeatedly during the final leg of the 2020 campaign. Uh, at one point, uh, a rally in Pennsylvania, he said, if we get sleepy, Joe, nobody's going to be interested in politics anymore. And I swear every time he did this, it made me think he wanted Biden actually to win. Um, well, Biden did win the election, and uh, so now the erratic fellow with the uh, the mean tweets is gone, and uh, the, the nicer, uh, at least 
allegedly nicer guy is president. Uh, it does not seem that uh, it has made us stop caring about politics, uh, restored normalcy, or let alone bored us. What actually happened is that uh, Joe Biden came out of the gate with executive orders at such a blazing death metal pace that for a hot moment, it even scared the New York Times editorial board. Ease up on the executive actions, Joe, they told him early on. Uh, by the 100-day mark, President Biden had already issued more executive orders than Barack Obama managed in his entire first year. On one, just one day last summer, uh, the front section of the Wall Street Journal featured three separate stories that together paint a, a picture of the president as supreme overlord of the US economy, uh, literally deciding which companies would, would live and which would, would die and which products could be sold. Uh, TikTok could stay on your, your, your kid's phone for now uh, because President Biden re reversed a Trump order uh, banning the app, but the uh, Keystone pipeline would have to die for lack of a permit that the administration refused to grant. And if you uh, got a Commando 450 showerhead during uh, the Trump administration, hand it over because uh, there's a new sheriff in town and he takes a tougher line on water conservation. Um, well, fair enough. You're probably not going to ruin uh, next Thanksgiving, arguing with your aunt about uh, federal water flow standards. The issues that really get our blood up uh, tend to be uh, involve more fundamental questions of identity, race and racism, uh, white privilege, transgender rights, uh, what it means to be an American. Uh, all of which, as I'm sure you know, gets especially fraught when it it involves what kids are taught in school. Uh, these are the issues that divide us more than others. And uh, as the slide shows, President Biden, like President Trump before him, uh, seems determined to inject himself and his administration into every single one of them. Uh, given that education is really the quintessential local issue under the Constitution, where the president has uh, effectively no constitutional mandate, uh, you know, you, you could imagine that this is a rare opportunity uh, for POTUS to tread lightly. Um, no such luck in all of these areas, which, by the way, were areas that uh, Donald Trump uh, inserted the executive branch into. Um, the Biden administration is... Uh, uh, heightening polarization by getting involved in, in these issues. Uh, we certainly don't need a one national opinion on the, you know, how to treat the 1619 project or which children can play uh, women's sports or, uh, you know, whether every kindergartner in the country should be masked. Uh, these are not essentially federal issues, but they have become uh, federal issues in both administrations, uh, simply by virtue of the president of both presidents, Trump and Biden, uh, inserting themselves into the, these issues. Uh, you know, maybe the the idea on both their parts is that uh, uh, by getting involved here, the unifier in chief uh, can 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 bring us together around a shared policy. But here is a chart that ought to make us doubt that this president or any president uh, enjoys such magical unity powers. What it shows is the partisan gap in presidential approval, the difference between how members of the president's party uh, rate him and how members of the other party do. Uh, used to see a difference of uh, 30 or 40 points by, by, by party affiliation. Uh, up through the 1970s. Uh, it's exploded in recent decades. Uh, nearly 60 points for George W. Bush, 
70 for Barack Obama and uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, healthily cracking 80. Uh, Donald Trump has the current record for a full term uh, in terms of the partisan gap in presidential approval. But, uh, you know, don't sleep on Sleepy Joe. He hit 85% in the partisan approval gap in his first 100 days. Uh, what is happening and what the chart does not show, uh, at least as well, is a trend line where president, presidential popularity is going down overall, uh, which raises the question, how are presidents supposed to unite us? We're polarized around them. Uh, presidents tend to polarize everything they touch. Uh, there's a scene in the first season of The Sopranos where a depressed Tony Soprano laments to Dr. Melfi that uh, I'm like King Midas in reverse over here. Everything I touch turns to not gold. Uh, as the same thing happens with the presidency. Uh, just by making an issue part of his agenda, uh, something that uh, this is well documented in the political science literature, even something that wasn't a partisan flashpoint, uh, take like a manned mission to Mars or something like that. By making it part of the president's agenda, the president can turn a previously uh, non-polarized issue into a polarizing issue. In the short term, as I mentioned, uh, there's, this dynamic is likely to get worse. Uh, in the current environment with a 50-50 Senate, uh, it's been obvious from the start that President Biden was going to come under enormous pressure uh, to get big things done with the pen and the phone. Uh, we saw a little of that with the, uh, the vaccine mandates. Um, at the same time, uh, there's pressure uh, on the president's left. Uh, uh, Chuck Schumer wants him to declare a, a climate emergency, much as President Trump declared a border emergency, tapping into new emergency powers. Elizabeth Warren wants the president uh, to declare an executive jubilee on student loans, writing off up to uh, 50000 per borrower. Uh, at a cost of around a trillion dollars to the American taxpayer. So whatever his inclinations and uh, throughout most of his career, uh, now President Biden has been a creature of Congress and uh, certainly there had been no indication that he was uh, particularly enamored of executive authority. Uh, that may not matter because the incentive structure of our government in a polarized time is to get big things done with the pen and the phone. Um, and if and when uh, the current president does, uh, I, I think there's one thing we can say for sure, is that it is not going to lower the temperature of our overheated politics. Uh, I have been, uh, you know, I've, I've focused a lot on President Biden in this talk and been pretty hard on him because He's the current president, but this is a dynamic uh, faced by anyone, uh, re Republican or Democrat, that, that takes the office now. Uh, I certainly do not, I'm not partisan myself, and I don't expect uh, that the situation will be uh, ameliorated by uh, changing the color jersey that the next president wears, going from blue team to red. Uh, I think that uh, what's likely to happen is you'll get a different suite of executive orders reflecting uh, a different set of political priorities. And uh, we will end up uh, again, screaming at each other for another or worse for another four years. Which raises the question, do we really want to live like this? Isn't it exhausting? Uh, if we want to take some of the heat out of our feverish politics, if we want, if we really want normalcy, uh, then I, I think what we need to do is make the presidency normal again, uh, to lower the stakes of presidential politics by reducing the president's power. 
Uh, that uh, I can say more about that in the in the questions. Um, but uh, among other things, it means reining in emer emergency powers, trade authorities, and the power to make law with the stroke of a pen. Uh, the good news is there is more than I have seen in the entire time I've been following politics or working on these issues. There's more interesting activity with strange bipartisan coalitions of uh, legislators uh, who recognize this problem going on the Hill now than there probably has been since the post-Watergate Congresses that uh, passed a lot of net necessary reforms to uh, presidential power. Uh, there's uh, an interesting bill by uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Chris Murphy, and Mike Lee uh, called the National Security Powers Act, which uh, would take a lot of the, would, would write the balance on a lot of uh, powers that presidents have seized or been handed in areas like emergency powers, war powers, and arms sales. Um, and we had, uh, we had uh, Senator Murphy uh, from Connecticut, a Democrat, out to, uh, at Cato uh, a few weeks ago to uh, to talk about this bill. Uh, that's a, that's one healthy sign of uh, a recognition of this problem in the current environment on Capitol Hill. Um, I should say I'm not known around the office for my sunny optimism, but the, I think that the prospects for making progress on issues like this are better than they've been in decades and probably that any time since the aftermath of Watergate. Um, and I think that's where we have to start. Uh, none of this is going to kumbaya us into an era of good feelings. Uh, it's not the presidency alone and the growth of executive power that polarized us and reducing the, 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 the oversized growth of presidential power uh, by itself won't bring us all together, but it's a start. And the important thing it will do, it will, it will make us less, it will make the situation less dangerous. Uh, I like, probably like many of you would rather have people put politics in perspective, uh, you know, uh, get in touch with uh, what uh, Abraham Lincoln called the better, the better angels of our nature. Um, I hope that happens, uh, but until it does, our more immediate need is to limit the damage that presidents can do and that we can do to each other in the fog of partisan war. Thank you. Gene, thank you so much. Um, fantastic points that you brought there. I wanted to spend a little bit of time now pulling in some of the questions from the teachers that we've received in the chat and then to, to dig in the conversation a little bit more broadly. Uh, but I want to start to sort of combine a couple of the questions that we've gotten together so far. You talk a little bit at the beginning about, uh, you gave, for example, the president engaging in executive actions, right? So single-handedly pushing trade agreements. Uh, the question I suppose then is what, what led to the breakdown in the sort of balances and checks between the executive and the presidential, uh, between the executive and the legislative branch. That is, what were some of the causes that led it to be the case that we could see so much in the way of unilateral executive action? Uh, yeah, that is, a, it's a great question. It's also a question that uh, uh, deserves a book in itself because it's one of those things that uh, is overdetermined. We're talking about uh, the drift away from uh, a the comparatively modest vision of the presidency that uh, uh, we had at the beginning and that uh, the Constitution envisions uh, is uh, more than a century process. Um, and uh, there were multiple causes. It's sort of like, uh, you know, why is the American waistline getting bigger? Is it high fructose corn syrup or we sit, uh, sit around and watch too much TV or, you know, there, there's uh, multiple causes behind it. Um, so there are technological changes that, uh, you know, the rise of broadcast media, 
uh, gave the president, uh, you know, a bully pulpit, electronic bully pulpit, allowing him to uh, to go over the heads of Congress and uh, appeal to the public directly, which is not something that was really part of the original vision. Um, the uh, you know crisis tends to be uh, a source of concentration of executive power. And the modern presidency was really born out of three great crises, uh, the uh, First World War, the Great Depression, and World War II. Um, and uh, we've seen three pretty major crises in this century, 9-11, the financial crisis, uh, some 10 years later, uh, and uh, our current COVID crisis. Uh, so external circumstances are part of it. Uh, but I also think we shouldn't discount the role of ideological changes. Uh, ideas have consequences. And uh, uh, people started in the uh, early 20th century to think about uh, the presidency differently. Uh, the progressive movement in the early 20th century uh, viewed the president as, uh, as one prominent progressive said, as a sledgehammer in the cause of national righteousness. Uh, and uh, Woodrow Wilson and uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a lot to do with the, the growth of, took advantage of some crises to uh, concentrate executive power. Uh, the, in the latter part of the 20th century, I think uh, the uh, conservatives and the Republican party uh, share a lot of the blame in the growth of executive power. Uh, certainly uh, in the post 9-11 period, uh, some of the, the claims about uh, what the president can do in terms of locking up American citizens on American soil and uh, launching wars at will. Um, the, you know, this was uh, something that, that was pushed by uh, conservative theorists of the presidency, uh, such as John Yoo. Um, so it's uh, that's a long-winded answer to a question that uh, you know that that it would take forever to unpack. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a, a combination of what's changed materially in the economy with technology, um, and uh, but also the way we we look at what the presidency is for. Uh, we tend to. Uh, uh, whenever there is, uh, and some of it is not particularly partisan, uh, some of it may just be in a, a modern era with electronic communications, this, the president becomes like the central character of our national drama. So whenever there's something that may not even call for a particular presidential response, uh, you know, I'm sure the, the all eyes turn to the president. And that tends to the vast amount of responsibility the public expects and invests in, in the president. Uh, well, with great, this is the reverse of the Spider-Man slogan, but with, with great responsibility comes great power because uh, president, you know, if you're, if you are viewed as being responsible for all manner of ills in, in fixing what's wrong with the country, uh, obviously you're going to seek the power to get it. And Congress has been all too willing to pass off responsibilities that the constitution leaves to it uh, to give to the president. This reminds me a, a great deal of the uh, Woodrow Wilson's 19th century article, uh, Leaders of Men, right? Sort of thinking about trying to change the way that we thought about the executive branch and the individuals there. And I, I, I can only imagine how difficult this is more broadly to bring into the classroom, right? This idea of saying we have this kind of structure as laid out into a constitutional document about the relationship between the different branches of government and the power of individuals and their relationship to each other in sort of law. But in fact, we have a, a significantly different system that in the way that it actually operates. Uh, but I wanted to get next to a question, uh, thinking about some of what you talked about around political sectarianism, this almost religious effect of individuals going beyond mere tribalism, but 
broadly occupying a sense in which people identify their whole being with their political ideology. Uh, and that, uh, I think you've put it elsewhere, they hate the other more than they love their own guy. Taking a look at the chart that you shared, right? So you see this uh, exceptional growth of uh, not only the difference between approval ratings within to without the one's party for the president, but you see ever higher levels of approval within the party. Uh, what's driving that, right? So Donald Trump was an exceptionally popular president among Republicans, and in many ways, Joe Biden is continuing that trend. What is, uh, what is in your view in the study, what are some of the, the causes leading to that uh, significantly increased support for the uh, individual in power? Yeah, that is, that is a, another tangled and complicated story. Um, one thing that happened was uh, the political scientists talk about party polarization and uh, mass polarization. Uh, so what happened first in the sort of the wake of the, the 64 Civil Rights Act, but doesn't really happen in, you know, isn't really complete until the 70s is uh, through the broad middle of the last century, uh, you know, the Republicans and Democrats weren't really particularly ideological parties. Uh, you know, you had a lot of conservative Southern Democrats, uh, you had liberal Northern Republicans, and, uh, you know, they don't start aligning uh, until the 70s and 80s where you get to a situation where the most conservative Democrat is still in his voting record. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure this is true today. Joe Manchin is pretty much to the, the left in voting uh, records to, to say Susan Collins, a uh, liberal Republican from, from Maine. Um, so that party polarization happens first and uh, as that happens, uh, there's a phenomenon where uh, everything becomes linked to identity. So in the, the 60s, uh, you know, you couldn't re really, there, there were a lot of cross-cutting identities, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, I have a lot of family that are, uh, uh, you know, from the New York area who were, uh, uh, fairly conservative politically, but were lifelong Democrats because that was your party. Um, you weren't able to predict uh, everything about a person from, uh, you know, their their party affiliation. You had Republican union members. Uh, you had uh, evangelical Christians who uh, were Democrats. Uh, you know, and party polarization happens first. And it's a lot of mass polarization is dragged along with it, where to the extent where um, your, your political party is no longer just uh, how you vote, it's a signifier for a whole host of other issues uh, about you. And uh, combined with the fact that people now increasingly live next door to people who vote like them, uh, you know, you don't have uh, in social life uh, a lot of to the there's been a drift away from uh, these sort of cross cutting identities and everything has been subsumed into politics. Uh, so you do have, uh, you know, in the, the, the Nixon near impeachment, uh, he technically skipped before he was formally impeached by the whole house. Uh, you had Republicans who abandoned him and you had Southern Democrats that were, you know, gung-ho to, to support him. Uh, a polarizing event, but not one that polarized as much, quite as much along party lines. Uh, I think what we saw in our recent experiences with impeachment is that uh, pretty much... Uh, almost everyone will will line up behind their team's president. Uh, it, it, there's almost no enormity a president can commit 
uh, that will cause him to abandon the, the base to abandon him. Um, so it's a, it's a strange situation to be in, uh, particularly if you're someone, you know, like, like us who, uh, thinks you should decide based on the issue and not on the, uh, what particular, uh, you know, color hat, the, the, the person advocating the, the, the position is wearing. Um, but it's something that is definitely become, uh, measurably more stark in the, particularly in the last 20 years. Thinking then a little bit about where we go next. Uh, how do we how do we move beyond this situation? Uh, Judy Hopert asked a really interesting question of, uh, would it be possible to move in the direction of being a multi-party nation, right? That is, if we had a system that looked more like uh, countries with a parliamentary system, for example, where you have four or five major parties, would that help solve for uh, some of this measure of polarization? And, and to what extent would something like that even be possible given the institutions and structures in the United States? Um, that is a great question. And I there definitely are political scientists who think uh, um, that proportional representation and a multi-party system uh, would help, uh, would help forge alliances. Uh, it's interesting, uh, polarization in cross-country comparisons, polarization has generally gone up uh, in Western democracies over the last 40 years, but it's nowhere gone up nearly as much as the, it has in the United States. It's actually uh, gone down in a, in a few of the Nordic countries um, and apparently has gone down slightly in, in the UK. Um, and well, the UK uh, doesn't quite have a multi-party system, so that's not the difference, but the United States is an outlier among, for the most part, among Western democracies for having a presidential system. Um, and there's a whole literature about, uh, I don't know that, that these two threads have been combined, but there's a whole separate literature about whether presidential systems uh, are, produce more conflict. Uh, and, you know, at least my intuition is that they do. Uh, there's a, a parliamentary systems by uh, unifying, you know, the legislative and executive and making it easier to get rid of a particular government um, tend to avoid some of the some of these problems. Uh, parliamentary says you have to keep a majority. You don't have Congress at odds with the uh, with the executive, uh, and uh, that does seem to be reflected in uh, some of the international polarization data. And definitely there, there are uh, political scientists who think that uh, I, I, it's hard to imagine how it's done uh, in a uh, place with single member districts like the, the, you know, the United States, um, but systems with proportional representation uh, by, you know, with more than two parties uh, by necessity, there has to be a little more uh, cross-party cooperation. So you offered earlier uh, a few thoughts thinking about how we, how we move forward. You offered some promising signs of strange coalitions in Congress. Uh, taking the conversation from a sort of very national level down to the level that these teachers are experiencing in their classroom every day, what... What's some advice that you would give to say if they wanted to help their students overcome some of the uh, some of the blinders that we happen to see in national politics and the way that individuals are engaging? And what advice would you give? Is that is it a measure of saying have a conversation with someone with a different perspective? Is it read a book or read an article, whatever it might happen to be? What what would you say are some steps that they can take to start to encourage a broader point of view uh, among their students? That's uh, that is a really tough question. I'm sure it's something we struggle with, uh, not just in, uh, you know, in the classroom, but in our own personal lives, uh, you know, with extended family and, and things like that. Uh, I've just always found it uh, extremely strange, this, uh, this notion that uh, uh, 
somebody's politics being wrong uh, makes them a bad person or wrong from my perspective. Um, now, certainly there are exceptions. I can, you know, if you uh, support, uh, you know, genocide or something as part of your politics, I can, I can see political views that would make you a bad person and someone that you would not want to associate with. But, uh, you know, I think that the more you can take the temperature down and, uh, you know, I always thought it was an effective technique in the classroom sometimes when uh, uh, you, you have somebody articulate a case for a position that they don't hold uh, and do their best job putting themselves in the mind of a person that, uh, that has a particular policy position that they happen to disagree with. Um, but, uh, you know, I think uh, keeping things from getting personal, uh, trying to uh, encourage everyone to uh, be able to articulate a position that they disagree with fairly in the best light possible, uh, I think these are really important skills to learn. Absolutely. Gene, thank you so much for joining us today for the conversation. I think you've done a fantastic job of laying out the case of uh, how we got to where we are when it comes to the question of polarization and the extremes of how that's impacting us currently and hopefully uh, some of the seeds of how we move forward from here. Uh, and I wanted to thank all of you teachers for joining us today for the conversation. I appreciate you taking time out of your afternoon and your school day to uh, be here to dig into this conversation a little bit. I do want to encourage you again, uh, if you haven't yet, please do sign up for Sphere Summit. If you have or you've already been and you can't make it this summer, share it with a friend, share it with a colleague. We'd love to bring as many of your fellow educators as we can out here to Washington, D.C. to join us for conversations like this and to dig into so many other conversations, whether that's about inequality or poverty or immigration or debt. We want to tackle all of those topics and bring all of these conversations to you and support you in bringing these conversations to your students. You can find out more about that at cato.org sphere. Uh, we'll be sending out the recording of this conversation soon. And with that, certificates for those in attendance. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. And please join me in thanking Gene for leading this conversation. You all have a wonderful day. Thank you.